Mr. Campbell Bortles coming forward. And I want you to notice that he has a very nice collared shirt and tie on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Looking good there. Looking good. If you, if you don't know Campbell, he grew up here in the youth group, went away to Cedarville College, Cedarville University, mm-hmm. where uh, he served there as the student government chaplain, preaching to the students in a big weekly um, chapel service. Did uh, awesome there, was loved there. And the real test was that he spoke it our mission trip last summer for our high school extreme group and the extreme students loved him. And uh, so we are blessed to have Campbell sharing the word of God with us today. I'm going to pray for him and then hand it over to him. Father, thank you so much for this chance to open up your word and hear from you. We pray for Campbell that you would help him to Just communicate clearly the truths that you have revealed to him so that we can understand them and apply them to our lives. Bless Campbell as he brings your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, well, good morning. It's it's great to be here with you guys, to be back at Midland Free especially knowing how many of you have invested into me. Um, It's a great encouragement to see how the Lord has just shaped me through the ministry of so many of you. And I'm I'm looking forward to return the favor a little bit today. Um, So as was said, I'm I'm Campbell Bortle. I'm currently attending a seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, known as Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And uh, I've been living in the northeast of Kansas City, but recently moved. And since you guys don't know what Kansas City is, if you hear the northeast, what you should hear is a very sketchy neighborhood. So I've been living in a very sketchy neighborhood in probably a sketchier house that's filled with all the creatures. And it's, it's been a tremendous, interesting experience. But there was cheap rent, right? It's, it's a great opportunity as a seminary student to get along. But one of the things that you should know about this neighborhood is it's just packed with ethnic diversity. There's tons of great street tacos and Somali food. There's a ton of Somali refugees. And the ministry opportunities are endless in this neighborhood. And so I've been going and playing basketball and pick up basketball with these Somalis and even had the opportunity to share a gospel the few times. But upon recently moving and reflecting on this neighborhood, I I regret some of the ministry opportunities that I did not take. There is a significant homeless population in this area. And I would drive by on my way to seminary, no less, this camp of homeless people almost every day. And just thinking back to that season, how little I did, yet recognizing this massive problem in our city. And the reality is, I think ministry is a lot like that. There's there's good things, and then there's hard things. There's things that we take upon ourselves, and there's a lot of things that we may ignore. A lot of times we, it's not uncommon, especially in ministry, to even be aware of a problem and then hope that someone else will take it upon themselves to do something about it. It's someone else's job to take care of it. And so this morning, we're going to be in a text in Matthew where he's going to confront our complacency. So you can turn there to Matthew chapter 14. I'll turn with you. And we'll be in verses 13 through 21. 
this morning, and he's going to confront our complacency head on. We're often stuck in our comfort zone, or maybe we just lack true compassion. We don't think it's our job. It's the pastor's job. It's the missionary's job. It's the family that has more resources or more time. And so we're often even motivated by the wrong reasons to do ministry out of our pride, out of something we want to gain, the, the perspective other people have at looking into us. We may just think that we're unqualified, though. That who, who am I to go and share the gospel? What do I know? Well, Matthew 14 is going to confront us with this, and he's going to show us that Jesus is the compassionate Emmanuel, God with us, who in, invites us to join him in his ministry, if you can believe that. And if Jesus invites us to join him in ministry, then we should not take that lightly. If Jesus, Emmanuel, wants to accomplish his work through you, through me, then there are massive implications. So this passage is about discipleship. What we're going to learn, the main point of the entire message that will be repeated throughout, is that discipleship necessarily includes joining a compassionate Jesus, a compassionate Christ, and his ministry to the lost. And I'm going to repeat that throughout as we revisit it. And I want you to hold me accountable to it. I want you to open up your word of God that you have a copy of it and to see, hold me to what I'm preaching. You shouldn't just take my word for it, but we should gather what we can see in the scriptures together. And so I'm going to read that passage for us. And we'll see how this unfolds and then we'll unpack it together. So Matthew 14, verses 13 through 21, they say this. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, when it was evening... The disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages to buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we we only have five loaves here and, and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied and they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. This is the word of the Lord. This is the gospel of Matthew. And I'm going to be honest with you. This is a really rich text. We've probably heard it. We we know the story. This is the only miracle aside from the resurrection that appears in all four gospels, no less. And so it's packed. Matthew's bringing in all kinds of themes and putting them together into this passage for us to see. And I, I honestly think if you heard from five faithful preachers from the same seminary, you might get five different versions of this text, not because Matthew's not clear, not because he's, he's not doing something very intentionally, no, but there's so many layers to it and you can hone in on one. But I want us this morning to hone in on what I believe to be the main point Matthew is trying to make. I, I want us to see specifically three action steps for true disciples of a compassionate Christ. Three action steps 
for true disciples of a compassionate Christ. And these are action steps that I think Matthew's highlighting for all disciples, not just for some elite class, not just for pastors or shepherds, but, but for all disciples. And there's probably more you could find, but I think he's highlighting these three specifically. And so before we get to that first action step, we need to set the scene because we're in a narrative text and I just jumped into the middle of a chapter in Matthew, in the middle of the book of Matthew. And so Matthew has a specific agenda, right? The whole Bible is a story. It's one book, but Matthew also has a story as this is a narrative text. And so he starts off his introduction, giving this main point that I'm here to tell you, to prove to you that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. Emmanuel, God with us, who came to dwell with us. And so that's how he begins. He's the son of David, the son of Abraham, that seed that you've been waiting for since Genesis. This is who you're talking to. This is the one that came, that was God with us. And so he's crafted this story to shape this, to show us this. But also in the book of Matthew, we were just contextually, locationally in Nazareth. So that's Jesus' hometown, if you remember. They're not known for much. So people would say, what good could come out of Nazareth? No one's ever heard of it. But he goes back to his hometown, is just rejected by them. You'd think if the Christ grew up in a town, that if anyone would know and accept him, it would be the hometown. But he's rejected. And now there's this abrupt shift that happens. And you would miss it if you didn't know the context of the location, right? Nazareth is 15 and a half miles from the sea. But all of a sudden, Jesus is getting on this boat and going across the sea. And you're like, how did that happen? And this abrupt shift is not because it's you know, wrong or the account is incorrect. But Matthew has an agenda. It's not just a biography chronologically accounting everything. I think there's pieces to that. It's certainly in some order. But he's constructed events for us to see them forged beside each other to bring that context into the next. So, so what happened right before this? Because if we look right at verse 13, it says, now when Jesus heard this, do you see that there? When Jesus heard this, heard what? What did he just hear? What just happened? What are we supposed to think about in this text? What, what was before it? And so it binds us to what precedes it. And this is what just happened. Jesus' closest cousin, John the Baptist, was just brutally murdered in one of the most graphic scenes in all of the Bible. You have this evil king, Herod Antipas, who has an unlawful wife that he has just taken. And then he has his new daughter from this new unlawful marriage come and seductively dance for his birthday party for his buddies objectifying her before his friends for sinful pleasure. And then he makes a terribly unwise promise to his new evil wife and daughter and requests, and they make the request that John the Baptist's head be delivered to them, that a man's life be taken. Not just that it's, he's killed, but that his head would be severed off and delivered on a platter to his birthday party. And to save face in front of his buddies because he doesn't want to look bad, he has to keep his promise because he's king. And so he grants a request he doesn't even want to make. And the severed head is delivered by an unlawful, to an unlawful wife. I mean, this is just awful. It's at the bottom of the barrel when it comes to sin. Now, when Jesus heard this, the weight of this is placed on who specifically? Jesus. I mean, imagine this. Yeah, Jesus, you're supposed to carry all of that weight of this dark passage into the next. Remember, Jesus is, yes, the son of God, and he is God in the flesh, but he is also fully man. And, and imagine if you had a family member, your closest family member die in such a horrific way, the weight that that would have. You're supposed to wrestle with this question. 
is this really the Messiah? Is he really in control? If he has the power over sin and death, then why are those things in the most vivid way happening to his own family? How could this be the Christ? This is the question Matthew wants you to prime your mind with as you enter into this text this morning. He expects you to put the weight of that sorrow and darkness onto Jesus. He just got rejected by his hometown and now this death has happened in a gruesome way. He's supposed to redeem the world. How is it so broken? And again, we ask, is this really a Messiah? So with all that burden, now we enter into the text. And so we transition to see the first action step for true disciples, which I believe shows up in verses 13 and 14. And it's, it is this, that we are called as disciples to adopt the ministry catalyst of the compassionate Christ. And, and hang with me, it will come together. It will all fit. Adopt the ministry catalyst of the compassionate Christ. And so let me explain that by the story and, and prove that to you. I want you to put yourself in Jesus' shoes. This has all just happened, all this weight. He, he wants to grieve, to, to feel this sorrow. And so as an act of moving on to grieve and also as an act of judgment, as the Messiah leaving a space, he, he goes out of the district of Herod Antipas and goes across the sea to a desolate place to get away from the crowds, to get away from the people, to just grieve this loss. But what happens when he gets to the other side of the sea? What does he come to find? There's a crowd there waiting for him. And now Matthew, it's really curious to me. He doesn't say much about the crowd in this passage. I would expect the crowds would be in awe at a miracle like this. But when we enter in to see the crowds, we don't really even learn how they get there, right? This is a, this is a lake that has a 33-mile circumference, and they just sprinted all the way around and beat a boat to get there. I mean, this is wild. But sure, they're coming from all these towns, but think about what this is saying about the crowds. He's trying to get you to think about something by what he doesn't say. This is a massive crowd. Mark tells us why and how they found him. He says in Mark 6, the people saw them going and many recognized them and they ran there together on foot from all the cities to get ahead of them. We don't learn about these details of how, but we see that there's something vivid going on, that they have a desperation for Jesus, right? They, they just want to get to him, Right? Or is that really what it says? Do they really want Jesus? John tells us why they go. A large crowd followed him, says John 6, 2, because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Get this. They don't want Jesus at all. They don't give a rip about his mourning. They don't care that his cousin just died, that he just got rejected by his hometown, that the king is after him. They don't care about any of these things. They just want his gifts. They just want his miracles. They just want to be healed. They don't want Jesus at all. We must be careful. I fear we can become like the crowds way too often. It's so easy to come to Jesus and pray my list of things that I want him to give to me and not for one second think about what he wants me to do with my life, where he wants to send me today, where I should be going as his messenger as an ambassador of Christ in his kingdom. He's king after all. I'm a servant. We must be careful to not become like the crowds. So what does your prayer life reveal? That you just want the gifts of God? Or does it reveal that you love God instead of yourself? 
Does it show that you love Jesus and want to see his kingdom come on earth? If you really love God and not just the gifts he offered you, you would go where he sends you. I mean, after all, the whole law and obedience can be summed up in this, love God. And outflowing from that is a love for others. Genuine disciples love God, not his gifts. Certainly we can enjoy those gifts and he gives those gifts, but that should not be our primary love. So let's get back to the story here. So how does Jesus respond though? Imagine you're in this place. You've just gone through this tremendously awful week and you're trying to escape the crowds and now you find a crowd demanding from you to be using you to just heal them. Does Jesus say, you wicked generation of idolaters, be gone? No. Does he strike them dead on the spot for their sin because he's created the universe and has the power to command angel legions? No. Does he get annoyed, frustrated, angry, pointing out their evil, bemoaning how they just keep on coming to him to use him? No. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 says that when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. Now, this could be translated that he was moved with pity. And Mark adds clarity to why he had compassion. Mark 6.34, he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Notice, he doesn't feel sorry for them because of their physical ailments. It wasn't their illnesses, their injuries, their condition that he felt bad for in a physical sense. He saw them that they were sheep without a shepherd in this desolate place. Jesus sees their desperation to get to him reveals their lack of understanding who he is because of why they come. They missed the whole point over and over. He keeps healing to reveal, I am God among you, Emmanuel, and you're missing it in my hometown here now. You keep coming for the wrong reasons, and yet he has compassion. And he teaches them according to the other chapters and the other gospel accounts. They may have some physical needs, yes, but they have a far greater spiritual need as we all do. And they are this way physically because the world needs saving and undone from the curse, which is what their sin problem is all about. This world is impacted by sin. They're sheep without a shepherd. So what does he do? He heals them, moved with pity on their condition. As desperately lost people, he has compassion on them. When was the last time that you had compassion like that? Not, not motivated just because it will be good on the tax return or it'll be good for my ego and boost my confidence and make me feel good about what I've done. But simply, you see someone is so lost and acting like a non-believer and you're just sad. You're moved with pity because they need Jesus. And so you have compassion on them. I mean... The last time you saw an obviously sinful person and were moved with pity because they were doomed to hell in their current condition. I mean, non-believers, they act like non-believers. And, and instead of bemoaning that stupidity or that, that un- lack of understanding, are we moved to compassion? I mean, how, how, can, how can someone support abortion? Obviously, it's a life, right? Like, how could they do that rant on Facebook? Ever seen anything like that? They're sheep without a shepherd. They need Jesus. Look, you have to understand that they're an unbeliever acting like an unbeliever. They need Jesus. 
They need the gospel. A savior who saves all of the lost from their sin and saved you. Do your actions reveal that you're moved with pity for the lost? Or are you even willing to consider caring for that single parent teenage mother who's in over her head in sin? Or the 35-year-old drunk driver who now is going to spend his life in prison because he killed someone in a drunk driving accident? Or the prostitute who's struggling with depression, the drug addict who ended up on the street, the homeless person down the road from the seminary? Do you get moved with compassion to share the gospel to these people because they might be saved from your sin or do you just ignore the problems maybe like I have if we're going to be true disciples of Christ then we need to adopt the ministry call the ministry catalyst that Christ has and what do I mean by that anyway what do I mean by the catalyst that Jesus has Jesus was motivated to have compassion just because the people were lost it's totally fine to do good things to be compassionate because it's the right thing to do. But if the gospel is not at the center, then we're not any different than just a charity that's secular and a part of the community, a government handout. We must have the catalyst of the lost world driving our ministry because Jesus modeled that for us. The main point of the sermon, remember? Discipleship necessarily includes joining a compassionate Jesus in his ministry to the lost, a compassionate Christ. All right, let's look at this section, second action step, because there's more to come here. And I, I find this in verses 15 through 18. Again, hold me accountable to it. See if you can find it too. And it is this, to obey the ministry commands of the compassionate Christ. Obey the ministry commands of the compassionate Christ. So verse 15 picks back up in the story. And we see now that it's gotten late and Jesus has been healing all day like over and over. And Matthew doesn't say he's teaching. So we know the emphasis is being put on the healing specifically. So each gospel counts giving you a slightly different angle because they are intending to prove a different point. And so for Matthew, what you should be thinking is Jesus just emptied a hospital. There's a, a crowd that's that significant there and he's just healing and healing and healing and healing all day long from a point of just weakness and sorrow. It's insane. Now it's getting late and it's referring to mealtime and the disciples are reading the room and they're like, these guys, they just sprinted around a lake and didn't bring any food. And we are in the middle of nowhere. There's not a town nearby. We know that it's the spring because there's green grass here. And so it's not next to harvest. They, they likely don't have food supplies in great degree. And again, we don't learn about the crowds. We learn about the disciples. They begin thinking through these things. And so the disciples show up now for the first time in the story. And in the Greek, their, their dialogue's literally just like underlined. If you could do that, they, it's done. So this whole story is being told in the past tense because it's something that happened in the past. But all of a sudden, the disciples speak in the present tense as if to draw you into the moment to make it vivid for you. And so they speak and they say, um, Jesus, this crowd like, is going to need some food. They need to go away and get some. And there's likely genuine concern here for these people. It's possible that they're also worn out and they want to grieve as well, this loss. They're longing for some seclusion. Either way, Jesus responds curiously. In John's account, we see that Jesus actually flips the question back on to Philip. In John 6, 5, it says, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him. For he himself knew what he was intending to do. 
Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient to feed them for everyone to receive even a little bit. 200 days wages is not enough to satisfy the hunger of this crowd. It's a big crowd. And John tells us that Andrew is actually the one who chimes up about this, this boy with these fish and this bread. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a lad who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many people? But when Jesus wants to show us something specific in emphasis, he, he highlights it for us. And so what does he do in verse 16? He says this, they need not go away. You need to give them something to eat. Again, another word that's just screaming out in the Greek. And they, this emphasis is so clear. You give them food. You feed them. And this is where the disciples should have gotten it. Jesus just said a command. Their king and Lord just said to do something. So he commands them to feed the people, but they miss it. They don't understand. And Jesus offers another command and says, okay, bring the food to me. Two commands. You give them something to eat. Bring them here to me. The clear emphasis, again, on the disciples. He wants them to see something, them to do something, them to join him in his compassionate ministry. And this interaction, this back and forth in the dialogue, this this would have instantly triggered the thought in relation to the story, bread, giving bread back and forth. that, That second Kings passage that we heard earlier in the service, the one with Elisha. I mean, the original audience of the book of Matthew would have read this passage and thought, wow, that sounds so much like what happened in 2 Kings 4. They've been familiar with this text. And so we we see that there were 20 loaves in this case. And and Elisha is brought to them by a servant. And he says, you you feed this hundred men with that. And he he said, it can't. It's not going to happen. Give it to them so that they will eat. And then he commands them again, give it to them so that they will eat. And he set it before them and they ate and they had some left over. Second Kings 4, 44 says, according to the word of the Lord, i.e. Yahweh, that's in the Hebrew. Who, who's the comparison to Yahweh in our text in the gospel? Emmanuel, God, Yahweh with us. It's striking. The similarities are crazy. The splitting of bread, the feeding of multiple people, the having left over. What you're really supposed to note is that last phrase, according to the word of the Lord. This is Yahweh. This is, this is God who's with us. He, he's the great I am, the one who is the word. And when his word goes forth, crazy things happen. Galaxies are created. Dead hearts of stone turn to flesh. And then John says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, Emmanuel. He became Emmanuel, God with us. Just like he, the angel said to Mary in Matthew 1, 23. You see, Jesus isn't lacking power. No, he just got conflated with Yahweh. That, that is God in the flesh, and he just commanded his people. You see, we have tons of commands throughout scripture, hundreds of them. This whole, this whole book is loaded with them for us to see how we are to live out in light of the spirit who's inside us. What it looks like to be on mission with Jesus, with him in the ministry he's doing, joining him. This is God's word to us, that we would be obedient, that we'd be disciples to learn and grow too. He wants to teach us, so will we heed his word as well? When we're faced with commands that seem challenging or hard to obey or difficult or confusing, 
we obey them or avoid them. Jesus says to you in this passage, this command, you give them something to eat. He wants you to be his hands and feet too. He wants you to be his people on the earth to accomplish his mission, to take his name to the ends of the earth, to carry his word far and wide where it's promised it will not return void and it will bring sinners to him to know him that they might be saved. Will you be moved with compassion and also obedience in the commands to go? That main point again, discipleship necessarily includes joining a compassionate Christ in his ministry to the lost. It's necessary. And so we're going to look at a third action step, the final action step for disciples of a compassionate Christ now to see what this looks like to apply this text in the whole. And I get that from verses 19 through 21, which is this, accept the ministry call of the compassionate Christ. Accept the ministry call of the compassionate Christ. So now, after Jesus gives these commands, he instructs the crowds to sit down to recline the traditional Jewish position for eating a meal. And he grabs a hold of these couple loaves and these fish. Both of them are small. Culturally, you should be thinking like a bun and some sardines or or some pan fish. A typical peasant lunch for a community by this freshwater sea. And Jesus breaks the loaves and offers up a blessing. It's likely the traditional Jewish blessing that they give when they break bread at meals, which goes like this. Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the world, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he blesses God and give, by giving thanks to him for what he is about to do and for providing the food that they have. And then he returns and he turns the buns and a couple fish into feeding thousands of people into an incredible feast. Jesus does it like it's nothing. And what happens? To, how do the crowds respond to this insane miracle? We hear nothing but crickets. They're not amazed. We, we don't know. In the other gospel accounts we hear, but Matthew's not focused on the crowds. Remember, he's focused on the disciples. He wants to teach them something. Do you remember the context of the whole sermon? where we went back and looked at that that passage about Herod Antipas, and I described that story. If Jesus was really the mighty Messiah that Matthew says he was, that he told us he was, that he's trying to prove, we, we just wondered, is that really him? Is he in control at all? Does he have any power? I mean, his cousin just died. And now we see Jesus nonchalantly multiplying a couple buns and some anchovies into a meal that fed upwards of 20,000 people because it's just 5,000 men, not including women and children. I mean, this is insane. This miracle is marvelous. All of the gospel accounts recount. It's the only other miracle other than the resurrection, as I said before. What did we also see in that last text? We saw an evil king at a horribly sinful feast, a different kind of banquet, a different kind of feast. With a few friends, just like Jesus had disciples. And what was the result of that feast, by the way? Herod didn't get what he wanted. Herod actually was lacking any control whatsoever. He didn't have control over his emotions. He didn't have control over his lust to the nth degree. He didn't have control over his wife by incest, who was conspiring through his stepdaughter. He'd have control over his tongue, making a promise that he would not be able to keep except by being backed into a corner and having to do it, to save face only in pride. What about King Jesus? We go from one king, Herod Antipas, to supposedly another, some, some boy from Nazareth. 
the son of David, by the way. One feast looks like the sensual, gruesome, woman-objectifying, cruel-dominating leadership of the world. And Jesus' feast looks like thousands of fully satisfied people by miracle displaying power over creation, by healing thousands of people treated with utmost compassion just because they're made in the image of God and they need a savior. I mean, really, which king's better? Which king is more powerful? Which king is in control? Jesus is the king that you can trust in, the compassionate king who is powerful. He is not out of control, but revealed to be the only one who's really in control of his emotions, of his desires, of his motivations, of his creation, of sickness, of diseases, of provisions, of food. He's so powerful that he can provide when no one else even can. That's a God that you can trust in when it seems like war rages on and sin is winning and battles in Ukraine with evil dictators are happening and hospitals are being bombed? Is God really in control? Absolutely. This is his world. He has made it. King Jesus knows the outcome. He knows the victory is coming. He defeated sin and death on the cross and hell and he's coming back. And and now he compassionately reigns on the throne Awaiting more lost souls to come to know him through his people. That's you. That's me. Remember the main point he's making here to the disciples. He commands them to give the food. Them to bring the bread. Them to distribute the bread. Them to collect it. And he he reminds them to make this image so vivid for them of joining him in the ministry that there's one basket left over for each of the disciples so that they would not forget. God always has the resources to accomplish what he has commanded and even more. Imagine if we had compassion on the lost like that. If if we went out to the world and were bold in our ministry, knowing that God will provide in abundance, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. I think we're seriously just too selfish. We notice the problems and then we sit by and don't do anything about them. It's, it's like when I live with the four guys in the house and the sink just piles up with dishes and none of us touch it because we want someone else to deal with the problem. It's the same thing. We do this in the world. We point our finger and we get frustrated. Why is it this way in the church? That's, that's so frustrating to me. And we do nothing to change it. Why, why is, you know, we have all of our complaints about ministry in the world. Why is no one helping that group of people? Why, why is no one caring for me in this way? Well, maybe you need to beef up that ministry. Maybe God's put that on your mind that you would be a part of it. It's not the mess that I made, so why do I have to clean it up? You see how selfish that is? How selfish I am? We have an opportunity to live out our call to be a compassionate disciple of Christ. And when that arises, it's easy to put that responsibility on someone else. Even God. We want him to do the miracles, not us. We want him to miraculously save all the lost souls in the Muslim nations, but we don't want to go. How often do you pray to God, asking him to move mightily in the world, to save someone, to heal a broken relationship, to to help someone in pain, to be present with those who are facing trial, but then you don't look for a way to be a part of the answer. H.B. Charles has a short, great book titled, It Happens After Prayer. I totally recommend it. And the problem that he says, there's something that's, it's not untrue. It's, this is his exact quote. The problem is not that these prayers are untrue or doubt filled. The problem is that 
It is a prayer for divine intervention rather than a prayer for personal responsibility. Why do we assume that God will work without us, without working through his own people who he's called to himself? What if God brought the problems to your attention that you would do something about them? What if his means of answering your prayer was to use you to share the gospel with that lost person, to go to the other nation that has lost people, to use you to care for the sick and the homeless, to use you to comfort the coworker who's facing cancer or divorce or grieving a loss of a loved one? What if you were supposed to be the hands and feet of Christ? What if I was? I think we're supposed to be. I mean, that is our ministry call. That's not just for pastors. That's not just for missionaries. Believer, you're the one who God has called to extend his hands and feet to the ends of the earth, to your communities, to your coworkers, to wherever you would go. You're the one who he wants to extend Christ-like compassion to the lost, that they might know him. That's what Jesus is teaching his people. That's what he's building towards, isn't it? Oh, but Campbell, you don't know me. I'm shy. I'm just terrified of sharing the gospel. Then remember the power that is in God's word. That is called a hammer in the book of Jeremiah. A sword that pierces bones and joints and marrow. Trust in these promises. Depend on the Lord for boldness and go and preach the gospel trusting him. We don't need more arrogant evangelists who think they can do it on their own. We need humble evangelists who need God to do this, this work. Oh, but Campbell, I'm too young to do ministry. Well, Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 12, don't, look, don't let others look down on you for your youth, but set an example for believers in your speech, in your conduct, in your love, in your faith, in your purity. Oh, but Campbell, I'm elderly. I'm disabled. I can barely get to church. I, I may not even be there, and I'm, I'm watching on the live stream then pray with the fervency of the kingdom's advancement on your lips because God answers prayers. And we need wisdom as well from those who are older, who've gone before us. So share the wisdom you have if you're older. You have so much to offer younger generations. Do you want more people to come to know Jesus? Then share your faith. Do you want your church to be healthy? Then invest everything you have, your absolute best into this community. And don't just be a consumer. That's not what the church was designed to be. It's a place to serve, to be the body of Christ, the hands, the feet, all of the members made up, building up to encourage each other, be disciples, joining a compassionate Christ in the ministry that he has. Join the mission. Quit sitting around and waiting for something to happen. Go see what God will accomplish through you instead of being a bystander. Oh, what a shame. You and I, we, Make of the cross, where the hands and feet inside of our Savior bled for us. When we don't use our hands to extend grace to those around us, when we don't use our feet to go share the gospel, we don't use our side to comfort those in need. For some of you, that might not be preaching or teaching, but for some of you, it probably should be. I mean, some of you should be preparing to fill this pulpit when it needs to be filled, some of you should be counseling. So you should be coming Stephen's ministers to help care for people in this church and in this community. I mean, counseling is just intense discipleship. After all, we have God's word, which is sufficient for all things. Now, I get it. You may be in a season where you're needing to be strengthened, but that's just a season. 
And, and no one is ever ready. We always need God to do ministry. And he is far too big to lie to yourself to assume that he cannot work through you. There's someone that you can help, some way you can serve, something you can be a part of in this body. And biblically, I think it's wrong if you don't. If you're a believer, you're called to do ministry as a disciple of Christ. You're called to join the compassionate Christ in the ministry he has to the lost wherever you go. I mean, that's the whole, the whole point. That's where Matthew's going, right? Turn with me to Matthew 28, and I'll end here. The end of the book, the last chapter, where Matthew is going to conclude all that he's trying to argue for. Matthew 28, let's look at verses 16 and following. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you, Emmanuel, God with us, always to the end of the age. Now, the 11 disciples, they went to Galilee and they see this, and Jesus gives them this last charge. If Jesus really is Emmanuel, God who came to dwell among his people, if he really has all authority over demons, over the spiritual world, over this physical world to turn bread and multiply it, over sickness to heal, then you should go. And while you're going, make disciples of all nations. That's the charge to us. We should feel this weight to join Jesus in his ministry. Your discipleship to Christ and your discipleship of others unto Christ necessarily includes joining a compassionate Christ in his ministry to the lost. So you too, adopt the ministry catalyst of the compassionate Christ. Obey the ministry commands of the compassionate Christ and accept the ministry call of the compassionate Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the power of your word that it speaks directly to us in every situation where we are on mission. Wherever we may be, whatever stage of life, whatever place in our journey, in our walk with you, we need you to do ministry. We need you to even need you. And I pray that we would have your help to go and be your hands and feet, to extend compassion to a lost world and to each other in the body of Christ, your own people. Lord, I pray for those that are lost in this room, that they would see a compassionate Christ and cry out to him and and ask for salvation, knowing that he has done everything for them so they don't have to do anything. They, They confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved, says your word. May there not be a lost soul that leaves here without knowing the power that you have to save them from their sin. And may we do our part to join you in the mission to reach those who are lost. I pray these things in the powerful name of Emmanuel, God with us. Amen.